Hey everybody, go ahead and grab a seat. My name's John, I'm one of the pastors here as well. One of the things we do here at H2O, one of the things we do here at H2O is we have someone share their story about how they came to Christ. And we do that each week so that those of us that are unchurched or de-churched can kind of find our bearings and see how God is moving among the people of H2O. This morning, we're privileged to have Savannah Zona share with us. So give her a round of applause. So I only have four minutes and 30 seconds, and I already go over time, so I'm going to just bear with me. Okay. So my story starts with my mom. She grew up in a horrible household where she was treated like she was nothing by people who claimed to be strong Catholics. Thus, she was an atheist until she was 20, and that's when she had me. When she felt the love for a child that when she had never experienced being loved herself, she knew that there must be a God or some kind of creator in the sky. Then when I was around four or so, she found Christ, and according to her, her life immediately felt changed. But since she'd been hurt by the church and by religiosity, she never really took my little brother and I to church. We went to holidays and did a few little church festivals when I was a kid, mostly to get us out of the house, but I never experienced a typical Christian household. I knew that Jesus loved me, and I knew that I felt happy around a lot of different Christian people I'd met, but I never really thought of God personally. I had never had my own Bible, never asked myself what would God think, or even thought about how to lead my life with God at the center. When I was in the eighth grade, my English class did a project where you were to create a symbol that symbolized the core of who you were as a person. I sewed together a plush heart with little muscles made out of paper towel rolls coming out of it because I defined myself as heart strong. When my friend Brianna presented, she just held up a cross. I question why a similar theme hadn't even crossed my mind, pun not intended, but it's a little intended. <laughs> if someone asked, I'd say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I had never thought about what that meant for me. I was curious about finding out what a life with Jesus in it meant, so I asked my mom if I could go to a youth group I'd heard about. My mom was reluctant, but after some thought, she finally decided to take me, mostly because I was pouting. When I was there, the messages were radically relatable, and I heard a song that talked about immense love, and it struck a chord with me. I had thought about God in an omnipotent sort of way, but never a loving, relatable dad kind of way. I had trouble with that concept because my father was emotionally, verbally, and physically abusive to me, and when I was five, my parents, thank God, got divorced, and when I was nine, we moved to Florida to escape his family altogether, and I haven't seen or talked to him since. So back to eighth grade. The person that brought me to the youth group ended up spreading rumors about me and bullying me very severely to the point where people would get up from my lunch table when I would sit down. So I'd eat lunch in bathroom stalls like you see in the movies, and I'd search for secluded spots to eat at lunch. Friday lunches were a great solace because a Christian club met on Fridays in my science teacher's room. When I was in there, if people judged me or taunted me, Jesus was like a big brother standing up for me. I felt safe and loved, and it's really funny that the Holy Spirit was brought into my life by people who were trying to cripple my spirit. I accepted Christ as my Savior and decided to get baptized on June 6, 2012, when I was 13. A month later, I moved across the state and immediately started looking for a church, and I found Calvary Chapel in South Florida. I began to serve there and attend events, and at one of those events, my small group leader said something that revolutionized my life. She said, you don't love people because they love you. You love people because you're supposed to. 
that hit me so hard because for so long I had defined myself as the girl with a bad history and the girl with a bad dad and I almost prided myself on that fact that I'd had a rough life and a bad dad and bad family and been hurt by so many people and how I was resilient and strong because of it, which in a lot of ways I am, but I had almost put myself in a box by thinking I was somehow outside of one. Well, God found me in that box and he broke down some walls and molded my heart from being scared to forgive into being forgiven and able to forgive. And when my mom remarried and yet another earthly father turned out to fail my family and I, God's forgiveness and love gave me the power and strength to forgive. My heart is genuinely altered and I still struggle with forgiveness and with accepting love, but the person I am now is more trusting, more understanding, and more aware of the fact that my past is part of me, but is not all that I am. The wrong that's been done to me shouldn't get to rule over me because I am not a victim of the world, but a victor in Christ. My hurt is not all that people see when they look at me, and most importantly, that is not what God sees when he admires his daughter. Because I am known, I am loved, and I am forgiven. And that's my story. <laughs> hey, Savannah is one of the most amazing human beings I know. She's really... <laughs> hey, I need to introduce someone. Uh, Mom, can you just stand up real briefly? Okay, round of applause. Now you know where I get my stature from. I am the absolute giant in my family. So she's staying with us for about a, about a week. She lives in North Carolina, and she's part of, of a church that's significantly older than this church here. And this church in North Carolina, it's a beautiful church, very loving church, and they love me because I am young. <laughs> I am young to them. And uh, I have a great relationship with the pastor, Pastor Bill. And on one occasion, Pastor Bill, we were going to do a service together there for them, and he asked me if I would like to wear robes. Now, we're not a very traditional church, and um, I hope I don't uh, offend anybody, but a dude wearing a dress doesn't make me want to follow Jesus. It just, it just doesn't. And I started thinking about all the traditions that the church has. Like, why do many churches pass the baskets? Or, or where does the idea of robes come from? Or the whole idea of a clergy laity. And I, I started thinking, what would it look like if, if some of us, if we wore robes? And so, <laughs> you know, nothing's been decided. I just lay this at your feet for your consideration. Uh, I think I look goofy. I think Carrie looks fantastic. Jim looks... Yeah, just something to think about. Pope, right. So please take that image down. <laughs> so here in this series, we're in the middle of a series called Jesus' Dream for this church. And, and what we're really attempting to do is rediscover what Jesus meant, what was in Jesus' heart when he came up with this idea of the church. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What was this beautiful, life-changing idea that Jesus had? 
It, it's his dream, and we need to tap into that dream. So I, I want to say right off the start here, some of us ha- feel like we've been burned by the church or we've had bad experiences with the church. And as a community here, we're trying to just move out of being critical of the church, right? Instead, we want to be the church. That's what we're talking about. We want to go back to Jesus' idea, his dream, his blueprint, and let's say, why don't we just try that? Why don't we just be the church? So in week one in this series, we talked about the concept of being the body of Christ. This amazing idea that Jesus physically walked on the earth, and then when he left, he said, now you are my body, you're my hands and feet in this world. That's amazing. Last week, we looked at what Jesus prayed for us and all Christians. He prayed that we would be just as united with one another, that we would not bad talk one another, we would believe the best about one another, we would commit and fight and protect for one another. He prayed that we would be just as tight as he was with the Father. Here in week three, I want to turn our focus outward. I'd like to look at a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, this is a familiar quote to some of us. He says, the church, this is an amazing quote. I, I, I want the words to just sink in for us. The church is the church only when it exists for others. The church is not a club of members where the goal is to serve its members. The church is only fulfilling Jesus' dream when we're thinking about people that are not part of us. That's amazing. That is amazing. All right, I have, a, I have a confession to give. You guys okay with the confession? Okay. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's not the confession part, guys, just so you know. Uh, I did something two weeks ago that I, I have never done. I have been critical of binge watching. I have talked about how that is a waste of our time and our lives are really short. And I fell into it. <laughs> there was this show, what's it called? Um, Designated Survivor. So, I had watched the show a few times and I thought the show was pretty great. And then one day, on a Saturday, I kept clicking next episode, next episode, next episode. And before I knew it, four hours had gone by. And it's like, ah. Now, I know some of you right now are thinking, four hours? That is absolutely nothing, dude. I've done 10 hours, and I'd say, not a good thing to brag about, actually. <laughs> not a good thing. But I realize in myself that there is this battle. There's this battle between the cross of Jesus, the whole idea of denying myself, and there is this in infectious disease called consumerism. There's something in me that says, coddle yourself, sit on the couch, watch TV, it will give you life. And it never once has. And I just sense that battle. So here's the big idea for this talk. Here's the big idea. Jesus's dream for the church can save us 
from the consumerism that shrinks our souls and ruins our lives. We live in a consumeristic society, and we need to go back to the cross and ask ourselves, what did Jesus really mean and are we experiencing? That's the big idea that I want to get to. I want to talk about a teaching, a doctrine that maybe some of us here have never heard of. It's called the priesthood of all believers. Let's interact on this. How many of you have ever heard that before? Raise your hand. All right, very few of you actually. Maybe 10%, the priesthood of all believers. You ever heard someone say, man, I feel called by God. I'm, I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to serve God with my whole life. Well, it's the priesthood of all believers is as if Jesus is saying, well, that's what we are all called and invited and privileged to do. You and I as Christ followers are priests. We're going to hand out white collars as we all leave today. <laughs> Kidding. We're not going to do that. This is kind of a hard talk to give, if I can be honest with you, because many of us are kind of overextended. You know, the idea of us having limits and margins in our lives. We are busy, 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 and we're tired. And so giving this talk about opening our eyes to other people can be challenging because some of us here are going to think, I'm being asked to do more. And that is not my point. We actually need to be done with thinking that way. We need to be done with thinking Christianity is trying hard to do better. Jesus gave his spirit because he has zero trust in us in order for him to have complete trust in us as Jesus himself moves through us. All right, I want to, talk, I want to take us back to early Christianity just for a minute. Many of us are, are not familiar with the origins, the beginning of uh, Christianity. There were no buildings. There were no churches. No one had a church. No one went to church. There were no churches. There were no pews. There was no idea of a special class of, of, of people that did ministry while others did not. That concept was not around. There were no vestments or robes or special clothing. The idea just simply did not exist. I want to read briefly through Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So read with me. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It means they were hungry to learn. They were listening and eager to grow and to learn. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to hanging out with one another, to sharing their lives with one, one another, to the breaking of bread and, to, and the prayers. That means taking communion together remembering Jesus and to prayer. Next verse. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is a very easy verse to misunderstand. When Christianity began, there were not churches everywhere. There was one place, Jerusalem. And so people from all over Israel simply moved to Jerusalem. And they were extremely poor, and so the Christians began to sacrifice in great ways for one another. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, 
They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Next verse. Praising God and having favor, having favor with all of the people. You know, the reputation of Christians today is generally negative, and there's a growing hostility against Christians. And right at the beginning, those that followed Jesus had a remarkable reputation, and it was for a very specific reason that I'm going to share with you. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, those who understood what Jesus had done for them. Day after day, someone said, I've come to believe. I've surrendered my life to Jesus. Okay, I want to tell you about a guy, a guy named Quintus Septimus Florens Tertullianus. Anyone heard of him? No. His name is Tertullian. Sam, right in the middle, has heard of him. This guy uh, was about... 150 AD, 120 years after Jesus, his dad was a Roman centurion. So he grew up in a Roman family, part of Roman culture. He engaged, he was a very sexually immoral man by his own words. He loved to go to the gladiator games. We watched, anyone see gladiator last night? It was on, just me, okay, sorry. <laughs> me and my family, we watched it. He loved to watch the Christians being put to death in the Roman Colosseum during the gladiator games. But as he watched this happen, it began to impress upon him that there was something that was different about the Christians. And so Tertullian became a believer himself. This professional, this lawyer, this Roman man realized that what Jesus had done, it had been done for him. And so this is what Tertullian said. See how they love one another. What struck him was the lives of Christians. And so this quote, actually, he is speaking to other people who have not, who, who have not become believers. And he says, look at them. See how they love one another. Second person I want to tell you about is a guy named Lucian. Lucian, was, uh, he's been called the Voltaire of Greek literature. He was a cynic, a very negative man. Um, I, I was trying to think who to compare him to. It'd be like Trevor Noah or Stephen Colbert. The guy was funny, and he would make fun of different people groups, and he made fun of Christians. So in a book that he wrote about a man named Proteus, he is looking at this Christian, and he's making fun of him, and I want to just read to you what he said. This is a lengthy quote, and there's just a very short thing that I want you to hear at the end. At Eventually, Proteus was arrested. For this, he was thrown into prison. When he had become imprisoned, the Christians, regarding the incident as a calamity, left nothing undone in their effort to rescue him. From the very break of day, aged widows and orphaned children could be seen waiting near the prison, while their pastors even slept inside with him after bribing the guards. Then elaborate meals were brought in, and sacred books of theirs were read aloud, Indeed, people came even from the cities of Asia, sent by Christians at the common expense to encourage the hero. They showed incredible speed whenever any such public action is taken. And this is the part that I want you to see in his quote. In no time, they lavish their all. This is a man that's not a Christian. 
He's a critic of Christianity, and his allegation is they lavish their all. Third person I want to share with you about is Constantine. Constantine became the emperor around 300 AD. He was regarded as the first Christian emperor, and this is really interesting to me. He had his whole army stand in front of him, and he took like a bucket of water and threw it on him and said, you're all baptized as Christians now. And what happened when Constantine became emperor is everybody shifted in their understanding of what it meant to be a Jesus follower. The church was filled with people who really were not passionate about Jesus at all. And something horrible happened. The church changed from a community on mission to an institution that you would attend. That was the change that happened under Constantine. The final person I just want to mention here this morning is Luther, Martin Luther. The period of time that came around uh, in the 1500s and into the 1600s, Luther realized we've drifted far from what Jesus' dream for the church was. And so he stood up and he said, something's really wrong. And this quote, this is not a spectacular quote at all. It's just a very simple quote. What Luther said was, this word priest should become as common as the word Christian. In other words, what he is meaning to say is, we're all priests. We're all called and invited to minister to people who are hurting. Okay, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For those of us who are Christians here this morning, do you remember when you were in darkness? Do you remember before the light of forgiveness and grace and God's love broke through your conscience? Remember when you were separated from God and had no idea what life was about? And God did something. He called you into the light. Verse 9 says, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Do you guys know who he's referring to? There's a people group that he's referring to here. He's referring to the Jews. He's referring to the Jewish people that understood themselves to be God's chosen people. And so Paul here is saying, or Peter is saying, just as there was a chosen people in the Old Testament, there's a chosen people in the New. Now, I want to show you an image of the temple. This is where people went to worship God. This is where the Jews went to experience God. It is a colossal building made out of numerous different courtyards. There is a courtyard called the courtyard of the Gentiles. People like you and I who were not Jews were allowed to go into that courtyard, but no further. Because there was a sign 
that communicated to those that were not Jews. And here's what the sign said. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade in the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Welcome to the temple. <laughs> you can come here. If you get any closer, we will kill you. We're glad you're here. Jesus came along, came into the temple that excluded some people from experiencing God. And Jesus essentially said, my body is the new temple on earth. I'm where you meet God now. Now, I want you to see what Paul said about us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. This is one of the most amazing truths that God has chosen to take broken, messed up, imperfect people who fail and who don't always rep Jesus well. And God has chosen in his wisdom to put his spirit inside of us that we are where people now experience God. I've got three questions I want to ask us here. First is this. What would it look like? What would it look like if Jesus went with you to work? So you get up in the morning. You get a cup of coffee. And there's Jesus standing next to the coffee maker. He's already got his own cup. And he says, I'm going with you to work. And you go to work. And as Jesus is there with you at work, he points out someone to you. Actually, it's a person that sits right next to you, but you don't have any relationship. You don't really like that person. They kind of bug you. And Jesus says, do you see her? And you look. And Jesus begins to tell you her life story. And the first, for the first time, you see someone who's right there. And he's, Jesus invites you just to say hi, just to begin a relationship. I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm not talking about outreach this morning. I'm talking about just noticing the people that are around us and initiating a relationship with them. What would it look like if you were on staff with us? Here's my second question. What would that look like? Because when the scripture says that we're all priests, that's what it's saying, that we're all on staff in God's church. I want you to look at, well, I want to ask you this third question. What's the real reason that we're susceptible? What's the real reason that we're susceptible to consumerism? What's in it for me is the question that we can sometimes ask. But that's just the superficial reason. There's something else that's real deeper. The reason it is common for Christians to think about what's in it for me and to find ourselves not being as thoughtful and loving toward those outside the church as we ought to be 
is because we really don't believe what Jesus said. We really don't believe that that will give us life. I want you to look with me at Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's just pause there. How many, how many of you have heard that before? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you believe that? You believe that we are called to take up our cross, right? Let's look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the moment of truth, when, when you're asked to serve or sacrifice, do you really believe that that's going to create life in you? I, I'm just being honest. I, I struggle with that. It's like, no, that's not going to produce life. I'm going to be more tired. I'm going to be more exhausted. I actually had the opportunity to experience that this past weekend. As you know, we have a family in this church that is struggling with a father of six that is facing cancer. And we as a church have been walking alongside of them. And we needed someone to show up at the Mike's Soul home on Friday morning at 10 a.m., actually to meet a contractor at Home Depot at 10 a.m. on Friday morning. And Bethany could not be there. And so it's like, well, I guess I can go. And so I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was volunteering for. Fortunately, my son went along with me, and we ended up at Home Depot lifting these really heavy pieces of uh, drywall and these massive buckets of, like, concrete mix, and we got the job halfway done, and we needed help. We needed a Marine. One of the members of our church called me up out of nowhere, did not know that we were struggling to complete the job, and he said, hey, I'm going to go pick up some tile for the family, and I said, hey, how about you go pick up some drywall also? Just, you know, just asking. So Ron, all by himself, goes and he does this huge sacrificial thing, and I realize as he's driving his truck loaded with drywall that I have asked him to do something all by himself. It's a two-man job for sure. So I'm on the phone with Ron, and Ron says, is there a second person? And it's like, um, I'm cooking dinner right now for a family. I can't help you. And Ron just says, got it. I'll take care of it all by myself. And I just want to applaud you, Ron. So I just want to shift the, the, the main point that we began with. What I said was that Jesus' dream for the church can save us from consumerism. And I want to shift that a little bit. Here's what I really want to say. Jesus' dream for the church must save us from the consumerism that shrinks our souls and ruin, ruin our lives. When we, in that moment of truth, do I want to give? Do I want to sacrifice? Do I want to take my time for this person? Do I want to initiate with this person that I don't know? And I'd rather like, uh, just think of myself. I need downtime. I need rest. There is a belief that is being tested. 
if I die to myself, what will actually result? And what Jesus promises is that we'll have joy. We'll experience something that the world doesn't yet get. Last week, I shared this illustration. Salvation is a free gift. It's like me offering you the greatest phone in the world. Let's call it iPhone Infinity. It's got the greatest apps in the world. There's the Love God app. There's the Notice People and Love Them app. It's like all built in there. Everything that we need is built into salvation. But you know what a lot of us have learned to do? We have received salvation. We have said, thank you so much. And we have turned it on silence. And we have put it into our back pocket. And as a church, what I'm trying to emphasize to us is that this phone will buzz every day of our lives and invite us to show radical, expressive love to those that are around us. Really, this whole talk about being the church, do you know what this topic, this series is really all about? It's really about identity. How you think of yourself. Who you think you are. We said in week one, you're a gift. You're a gift from the Father to the Son. That's what Jesus taught, that before God created the world, you were in the mind of God, and he took you and gave you as a gift to Jesus. Last week, we said that you have superpowers. Because of the Holy Spirit, you have superpowers that affect others in incredible ways. And this morning, what I want us all to get is that you're the temple. You're the priest. You're the sacrifice where people get to encounter God. I want to end with the story, and then we're going to celebrate with baptism. Her name was Sharon. I was involved in campus ministry at the time, and we decided to do something that actually, in retrospect, just seemed kind of dumb. We decided on a hot summer's day in Illinois to set up a lemonade stand on campus. A lemonade stand. And so... We're there at our lemonade stand, and people are walking by, and we're just offering them a glass of lemonade. And we had decided, because many people are so negative toward Christianity, that we were not even going to tell people who we were. Because honestly, we weren't trying to grow our numbers. We weren't trying to attract people to our campus ministry. We just thought it would be a great idea if we just showed love. In a dark world, if we, just, if we just gave people a glass of lemonade. 
So Sharon comes walking by, and Sharon had a dark past. Well, like everybody does today, right? But she had one. She was pregnant at the time. She did not know who the father was. She'd heard a little bit about Jesus, but that was it. But she saw the lemonade stand, and she stopped, and we gave her a drink. And she was clearly confused, and she said, so why are you guys doing this? And I remember saying, we're just doing this to help you. And she looked at me, and it's like, no, but really, what are you really trying to do? It's like, I, we're just trying to show love to people. And she kept pressing in, and it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is going on? Are you guys Christians? And it's like, well, yes, we are Christians. Sharon began to come around our church, and I remember sitting down with her and just explaining what Jesus had done for her. I don't remember the moment when the lights came on inside of her heart, when the idea of a bloody body on a cross meant your past can be wiped clean. You can feel clean again. I don't remember that moment. What I remember is the first time she prayed. Sharon, in a life group, opened her mouth and she said, Lord, I thank you that you are like a tall glass of lemonade on a hot summer day. The love that we showed became the vehicle God used to open the eyes of someone who needed Jesus. I'd like you guys to stand with us as we move into worship. We're going to sing and we're going to baptize two people here this morning. I want you to understand what baptism is. Baptism is the symbol. It's the wedding ring. My relationship with my wife, Jana, began long before the day we said to one another, I take you. But that day of our wedding was when we made a covenant and when we went public and said, forever, I'm committed to you. Baptism is that same covenantal symbolic expression that we have become believers in Jesus. When a person goes under the water, it's like saying, I believe Jesus died and was buried and my sin is washed away. And when that person comes up out of the water, it is symbolic of the truth that I have become a new person. Why? Because the grave's empty. Jesus rose from the grave. So let's sing and then let's celebrate today Kyle and Lacey who are being baptized.